I, I just got back from camping the past several days. Uh, my brother flew into town, and we went to Del Val. It's, it's, it's Livermore. Uh, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice. Uh, we, we, uh, the big idea, we took our older boys, and so really what, what made the vacation the vacation is just being around the campfire and then telling campfire stories. And, um, and so we just started talking about our childhood and some of the stories that came out of that, and then there was this one story that I shared, and it was, uh, I was thinking, wow, that's, this is, uh, has a lot to do with what we're talking about today. Uh, so I was going to tell you guys a story. Uh, it's, it's a story of my dog. Uh, but you have to, like, promise me you're not going to take it the wrong way. Because I'm thinking you can actually take this story the wrong way, you know, on multiple levels. So, so we're gathered around the campfire, and this is the story I told. When I was about 10 years old, we, uh, we bought this dog. And uh, it, it was a, a cross between a terrier and a poodle. It was a medium-sized dog, and my brother came up with the best name for it. It's so original. He named it Spotty. Yes, because there were five black spots on the dog, and so he called the dog Spotty. And it was interesting because we never, like, washed that dog. And so this doesn't really have to do much with the story, but it just collected all this, like, dirt, and so it was almost like this tar mat on its body. Anyways... So my, one day, my brother came up with this fantastic idea. He said, uh, Andrew, you stand over there, and I'll stand over here. We'll put the dog in the middle of us. We will both call out to the dog. And whoever the dog comes to wins. Okay? I thought that was a great idea. You got to understand the, the kind of the competitive edge between my brother and I. We're like, okay, let's do this, do this. So we went to this room. We put the dog right in the middle. We said, okay, on the count of three, call out to the dog. One, two, three. And so I was like, Spotty, come here, come here, come here. And my brother was like, Spotty, come here, come here, come here. And guess who the dog went to? Me. Dog went to me. Dog went to me, okay? My brother comes up to me. He was not happy with this. He said, okay, let's do this again. And he grabbed the dog, and he took a wad of newspaper. He rolled it up, and he spanked the dog. He said, bad dog. Okay, put the dog in the middle of us. And he said, let's do it again. One, two, three. And this time, my brother was like, Spotty, come here. Right? He was like, Wah! And guess who Spotty came to? Still me. No, I'm kidding. He came right to my brother. Right all the way to my brother. And uh, I, 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 my brother hates his story because it makes him look like a, a dog abuser and all that. But, but... But I was thinking about this story. I think this has a lot to do with our church and what we're talking about today. It has a lot to do with motivation, why we do what we do. Now, when Spotty came to me, he came out of love. <laughs> Are you with me? Why is that? Because I fed him, I bathed him, I paid attention to him. He came to me out of love. He looked at my face. That's the face that feeds me. He came right to me. When he came to my brother, he came out of fear. I don't want to get spanked again. Right? Now, I, I just want to, I want to ask each of you guys here. Look, we're doing a lot of things. 
You know, we, we get this message that a Christian life means to be faithful to God. So we're doing a lot of things. Even this coming week, we're doing a lot of things. We're going to Richmond. Why are you doing it? What's the motivation that drives you? You know, I, I know that some of us are actually driven by fear. Like, you know, somehow we've read the Bible and we, the way we look at God is maybe, you know, you kind of see God like you, you see your, your dad who is remote and distant and punitive and you're just kind of like, you know, I don't want to get on his bad side. I don't want him to punish me. So I better get working doing all these things. But I think there's, there's all of us that are motivated by, by love. Look at all the things that God has done for me. What motivates you guys? Now, we just got through with the series in Ephesians. And in, this, in, this, in the book of Ephesians, you know, really there was a lot of work that we're talking about, you know. And, and really the whole series was named Living a Life That Demands Explanation. So there, there was all these different areas of our lives that we were really working out the gospel through. Like, you know, marriage. And, and, and in Ephesians 5, it talks about dying to yourself in order to, to make your spouse holy. And that takes a lot of work. And then we even talked about work. Like, what does it look like to go to work every day and, and to be like, you know, Jesus is my boss. So I'm going to be working hard for him, not just when, you know, the boss, the, the underboss, is looking at me but all the time because Jesus is looking at me and so it's this life and you get this impression man it's going to be a lot of work we got to get busy and I just got to you know pause and, and just say okay you guys what's your motivation for going why are we going why are we working hard now I got to tell you I, I love to be in a church where we're on the move this church Christian layman church is on the move no, in January and February, we, we talked about this series of living simply and giving generously, right? And we're calling each person to say, look at what you got. We probably don't need all the things we have. What would it look like for us to live simply and to give generously to the poor? Oh, that's hard work, right? Why are you doing it? And then even, you know, like next week, we're going to be in the inner city. Most of us are signed up to go. We're going to be working hard. We're going to be meeting different people. We're going to be loving, serving them. Why do it? What's your motivation? Why are we going? Why are we working so hard? Why, why are we doing it? Now, now, now listen to me because I really think there's a higher motivation for why we're working hard and why we're doing what we're doing. Now, I don't think, I don't think a lot of you would say, yeah, 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 I'm driven by fear. That's why I'm doing, that's why I'm willing to go. That's why I'm willing to work on my marriage. That's why I'm willing to call Jesus my new boss. Most of you wouldn't say, you know, I'm not, I'm not really driven by fear, although some of us would say we're driven by fear, but others of us would just have good reasons, like, you know, it just seems like this is what I should do as a Christian, or this is the kind of person that I want to be, or even when we're going to Richmond, it's kind of like, you know, I'm going because someone asked me to go, or I just believe in the cause for why we're going, and Paul in the book of Ephesians says, look, there is a higher motivation for going and living a life that demands explanation. I want you guys to think about going to Richmond and serving and loving the people there for one reason primarily that drives everything you do. Now listen to me, all eyes on me. Can you imagine yourself going to Richmond because you're blown away by the gospel? You are blown away by what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. You're like, I can't believe that Jesus would die for me, that he loved me that much. 
And so it's like the most natural thing that I want to do, most natural thing I want to do is I want to spend my life serving him. Now look, I know we have all these good motivations. I'm not trying to take away from that, but I'm saying the primary motivation for going to Richmond or to working on these relationships that need improvement or to work hard for Jesus. You know, like sound team, you guys come here early, working hard. Why? The primary motivation, can you imagine? I'm blown away by the gospel. I'm blown away by what Jesus Christ did for me. That God would give up his life. And so what do I have in return? I I have my life. It's peanuts compared to his life. But everything I got, God, I give it to you. And then when you go and you serve or do whatever you do in the name of Jesus, you do it out of this sense of gratitude. You do it out of this sense of like, oh gosh, I can't believe he would do that for me. I, I know this a friend of mine who was a very, very faithful uh, worker, you know, his free time, um, um, all his weekends, he would, he would give to the church. He would give to the church. And then one day he was 40. And he thought, you know, the only thing I really ever wanted in my life was the perfect spouse. I don't have it. And then he thought, I don't think it's really worth living a life where you're just giving yourself to God. Has he seen how hard I've worked for him and he doesn't even give me what I want? And so then he just dropped out. But, but he dropped out because when he was actually doing these things, working hard for God, he was doing it as if he was earning something from God. He was, he was trying to earn something like, look, I've done all this stuff, you owe me. But Paul's like, no, 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 don't you understand? What you do in service and hard work is a response to what God did for you. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll go through this. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I know that, um, that Calvin covered this, and I also know that he did a really good job. But I think there's certain scriptures where, you know, we should actually go through it again because it's that good and that foundational. And I think this passage right here is one of those passages, okay? And as we do that, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to pray. So would you just pray with me? Lord, I I ask that as we go into your scripture, you would make it come alive, not by my power, but by your power. There's some truth here, and I just feel like it's so fundamental for us to grasp. And if we don't grasp it, you know, we're just going to be powerless. So would you just fill this place with your Holy Spirit and speak through the words of Paul by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so this is Paul. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, okay? So you were dead in the trespass and the sins in which you once walked. You know, it's an interesting thing. I just, I just noticed that it says dead and then also says walked, which is kind of a funny thing if you put them together. It's walking dead. And have you guys seen that series, The Walking Dead AMC? It's a series about zombies, right? And so there's almost like there's an image here about zombies, but it's like, okay, but there's something very appropriate about that image, right? You're the walking dead. Actually, Bruce and I went to go see um, World War Z just the other day, and we really enjoyed it. We thought it was really fun. Uh, but it's like, it's about zombies, right? And, and there's, something, there's something here that's very true. It's like, you're, you're, you're walking around, but at the same time, you're dead. Now, what, what, where does Paul get off on saying that we're dead? 
Well, he says you're dead in the most important relationship in your life. What's that relationship? That relationship is with God. So because you're spiritually dead in your relationship with God, that means you're dead in all the other places of life in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, I, I just want to do a little bit of explaining. When, when Paul says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, he's referring to ancient cosmology where they believed that demons would reside like in the atmosphere of the earth, okay? So either Paul is confirming that sort of presumption or he's saying, look, I'm just, you know, um, I'm just going by, you know, their figure of speech. Either way, I, I think it's actually more the former. He's saying that, that the evil one has influenced people. And so he's referring to that influence. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Can you guys repeat with me, sons of disobedience? Okay, so Paul is talking about a time before Christ came into your life. And this is how he's describing it. You were dead, trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience. He goes on, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Can you guys repeat passions of our flesh? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Can you repeat with me? Children of wrath. Okay, these are some pretty harsh words and I'd just like to know how are you guys receiving these words? Can you relate to them? Now, I, I bet you because Paul is talking about, okay, this is the time before you met Christ and this is how I would describe it. Sons of, of disobedience. Uh, dead in trespasses and sins. Um, carrying out the desires of the flesh. You were by nature children of wrath. How, can you relate to that? Would that accurately describe you before you came to Christ? I just want you to think about that. Now, I bet you that there's some people, maybe a lot of people who would actually say, that is exactly what my life was like before I met Christ. Now, that's, a, that's a great description. And I feel like others of us are like, uh, I don't know if I would relate to that. I, don't, I actually think that before I became a Christian, I was a pretty good person. And I would actually say something similar, but somehow my God has convinced me otherwise, and I see the truth as otherwise. Now, one of the things that has convinced me to see myself more accurately, and I think would be helpful for you, is I just want you guys all to stand up. Would you just, I want to do a little bit of an interactive exercise. Could you all stand up? Okay, now, this is not something I would do, like, at a party, all right? <laughs> this is not like a party favor. It's not like a party trick, but we're in church, and we're really pursuing reality and truth, and so I just want you guys to have an imagination exercise, okay? I want you guys to imagine with me. Now, you're standing up. The blood's flowing to the brain. Let's kind of picture this out. I want you to imagine that when you were a little baby in your mother's arms, these scientists got together, and they took you away for a moment, and they took you away and they implanted in your tooth a tiny microchip that records everything that was going to come out of your mouth, everything that you were going to say. Okay, can you imagine that? All right. Now, I also want you to imagine that, again, as a little babe, you're like, they didn't have that technology back then. Just roll with me. Just roll with me. Just go with me. They implanted in your forehead a tiny little camera. And it's, it's barely visible to the, to the naked eye, but it's right there. And basically, this camera was recording everything that you did. And a microchip that was actually monitoring the neural patterns of your brain, and it could figure out what you were thinking because it was somehow uh, wirelessly uh, connected to a computer that could process it all out. Okay, so it's thinking what you're, th it knows what you're thinking, it sees what you're doing, and it also is recording what you're saying. Now, this gets even better. Are you with me? 
at the very end of your life, right, maybe it's 30 years from now, maybe it's 70 years from now, okay, they get together this really, um, uh, really skilled, very gifted, divinely enabled film crew, and they, they look at all the film, all the words that were spoken, all the thoughts behind all the things that you did, and they, they, they cut it and paste it, they cut it, they, and they, they put together a documentary of your life. Except this documentary was all the regrettable, evil things that you either thought or said or did. Okay, you, you know, Gilbert, you, Dion, you, Yvonne, I just want you to imagine, okay? Now you're sitting in a theater for one and they are going to roll the tape and it's 48 hours long, right? But you're very interested because it's all about you, right? I just want you to replay in your mind what would be on that tape, okay? 48 hours of you at your worst and I want you to roll back in your mind what that tape's gonna look like. Can you guys think about that right now? What would that look like? What if it started when you were young and how you treated your siblings? What if it fast forward to when you were a teenager and it was like how you treated your parents? What about, you know, it was shots from school and, and how you might have cheated on certain tests? What about maybe certain relationships that you've had and hearts that you've broken and people that you've used? Maybe it's the, the recording of every word that you said, every thoughtless comment, every hurtful word, every word that came out of your mouth that was like daggers and you didn't even know it. What about the film, that, that part of the film, that chapter just on your sexuality, the things that you've done that nobody knows about and you're, you're, you're actually, you're, frankly, you're embarrassed that it's on tape. I want you to think back in your life at all the broken relationships you've ever had. Maybe best friends, and all the things that you did to contribute to those relationships being broken. The selfishness, the self-absorption, the thoughts that you had that had to do so much with you, preoccupation with you, and how little we thought about God, how little we had regard for other people. How jealous we were of others who were more talented, more likable, more successful, and how often we compared ourselves to them. How prideful we were in thinking we were better than other people, lecturing other people, but in secret, we're actually doing the same things, if not worse. And that's right there on film. There's just one part about hypocrisy. Even how we fill our lives with all these nice things for ourselves so we can pat ourselves in comfort and shared relatively very little with those who were poor and those who were starving in the world. Okay, all eyes on me. It wasn't my intention to thoroughly depress you, but, but this is where the scripture went. Now, if I'm gonna be a faithful uh, preacher on God's word, I gotta go where the scripture goes, and this is where God goes. Now listen, a lot of times when we talk about what's next, people go, so what? People go, big deal. You know why? 
It's because we skip through these verses right here. And I am not, as someone who loves you, not gonna let us just get off the hook and skip through these verses. This is where the scripture takes us. That tape, that documentary. And then we read on. Then we go on because we need to go on. Verse three, verse four. But God. Can you guys repeat with me, but God? Can I get an amen that there's a but right there? Can I get an amen? (laughs) Okay, but God. Can you guys feel that? But God. But God, like, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, when, when, you guys can actually sit down. Thanks for standing up with me engaging. Now, when, when the scripture says, you've been made alive, now what that means for that documentary, because I want to connect the dots, is that means Jesus on the cross went up to that documentary and he, he hit that delete button. So that documentary just... It is gone. He made us alive. He made us alive. It's by grace that you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. You know, Paul repeats twice, it's by grace that you've been saved. He wants you to to get this through to you clearly. You guys, listen to me. It's by grace that you've been saved. So let me ask you, when was the first time you ever had a grace awakening? When was the first time you realized that it's by grace that you've been saved and you didn't have to earn God's approval? What was, what was that like for you when you, when you remembered that? When, when, when you realized that? You know, what's, you know what's weird? I've been a Christian for, uh, you know, over 20 years, and I just realized it again, like when we were going through Ephesians. You're like, well, 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 you're, you're a pastor. You're like a professional Christian. Yes. And I, and I just, I realized it again as I was reading Ephesians, and it, it just made me just want to stop and go, Is God really that good? It is by grace that you've been saved. You know, I I was talking to a college student um, this month. And this person is not in the room, so don't don't feel like I'm ratting someone out. Um, And this person was thinking about getting baptized. And so I was just, you know, asking them preliminary questions just to try to assess if they're ready for baptism or not. And one of the first questions I asked was, well, how is a person saved? Like, how do you know you're saved? How, how does a person get saved? Now, really quickly, this person said to me, because, you know, they've, they've been a seasoned Christian for a while. They've been mentored. They've been discipled. This person said to me, you know, a person is saved by loving God with all their heart and by being fully committed to him. Is that right? Is that right? Okay, what, what I'd like you to do is actually turn to someone next to you 
And I want you, I want you, I'm asking you that question. How does a person get saved, okay? You're like, you know, I'm totally new to church. I have no idea. That's fine. Just, just ask the question. Just have a nice conversation. Really, I'm going to give you one minute, and then I'll come back. Let's go. Now let's have the other person share. Now, I don't want to take anything away from this, uh, this college student. This person was very bright. This person has been, you know, they've read their Bible. They've been in, in church. They've heard teaching. This person said to me, a person is saved by loving God with all their heart. And a person is saved by being fully committed to God. You know what I said to this person? I said, you are totally wrong. Now, that was not the very, very pastoral thing to say. I realized that if I go back in time. And actually, they're not totally wrong. But they're fundamentally wrong. Right? Now, notice what's coming out of her mouth. She's saying, look, a person is saved by this person doing something. And then this person also doing another thing. And that is fundamentally wrong. What does the scripture say? It is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Now, here, I got to make my stand here. Look, if there's, because, because so often we fall back into these parts like we're earning God's favor. We got to work for hard and look at all the things I'm doing for God. He owes me. No. No, Paul's like, no, 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 no. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace. You cannot earn it. It's a gift. So this person was like, are you saying to me that every single person is saved on the planet? I said, no, because it's through faith. Not every person believes and has faith and believes. Believes, believes what? Okay, let me put it this way. When a person says, look, I'm saved because I, right there, fundamentally, you're wrong. Because what does, look, this whole 10 verses about, is about what God did, not about what you did. If it's about you and all the things you did for God, then really, you're the hero. Woohoo! You know? But it's about what God did. What did God do? God's son came to, to earth. He lived this amazing life, brilliant love, brilliant teaching. And three years into ministry, he was murdered. He was executed on a cross. Once he was executed, three days later, he rose from the grave. And then 40 days later, after teaching and appearing to his disciples, he ascended back into heaven. This is the story about what Jesus did. And if you believe what he did and you take it in objectively and personally, if you receive him as Lord and Savior, then you are saved. And she's going, well, what about loving God? And uh, what about, you know, being fully committed to him? I'm like, yeah, that's what comes next. It's the response. That's part two. But don't ever think that you are saved by part two. <laughs> you are saved by part one. And what naturally flows, your response 
is your life where you go, you know, my life is nothing compared to Jesus' life, but, but here, take it. I'll go serve in Richmond. I'll give simply and, and I'll, I'll live simply and give generously. I'll work on, I'll do all these things as a response out of the overflow of appreciation for what you've done for me. Now listen, this is one of those messages just where if I never was clear about this, at the end of my life, I would just be, I would be racked with shame as a preacher. You guys, I got to make my stand on this message. You guys got to hear me clearly. This is the message. This is the message. And then we go to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's like, finally, Andrew, now you're talking about rich men. Now you're talking about, like, working on my marriage. Now you're talking about relationships and all my hard work. Yeah, but it's just one verse. And all those nine verses was the bigger story that was leading to the one verse. You can't do this verse without all those nine verses because that's the power that you have for living it out. But even still, you're still not the hero. Do you guys notice that? For we are his workmanship. Who's the main character? It's still God. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Who's the main character? It's still God. Which God prepared beforehand. Who's the active agent? It's still God. God is still the hero. We are doing these things because he, he created us to do them. And in fact, he created for us to do them a long, long, long time ago because we're his workmanship and what we do is a response to the greatness of what he did on the cross. So, that's why we go to the Richmond and that's why we do things like live simply and give generously. Now, now Amy, could you, could you join me for, for a moment? Now, our church, again, I love being a part of a church where we are, we're on the move. You know, there's, there's work to be done, but I just, again, I just wanted to make it very clear. This work is a response to what God did on the cross. And so we do it out of gratitude, not out of a sense of entitlement, but gratitude. So there's, there's a couple different movements in terms of the good work that we were creating Christ Jesus to do. And one of these movements is the ice cream in Richmond and really making a difference in the inner city and really making a difference in this local partner church. Okay, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But even uh, before that, like in January, February, and we're doing this in a trilogy where we have these short campaigns for generosity, one of the other movements is we want to live simply and give generously. So really, our time and our money. Time, in Richmond, is one example. Money, living simply, and really, really uh, being generous with our resources. So, so Amy, Amy is the co-leader of the Kingdom Fund team. Now, the snapshot of the Kingdom Fund team is that we were sitting on a surplus for a while, and, and really through the leadership of our board and our pastors, we said, you know, why sit on this money? We should put this money to work for God's kingdom. So we allotted a big chunk of it, and we said, you know, over three years, we're going to give generously uh, $10,000 to these different organizations that we're going to highlight every Sunday for a short campaign every year, and we're going to really try to encourage our church to be generous. So that was the, the Kingdom Fund team and, and Amy's co-leading this, this, uh, this movement of our church. Now, now Amy, uh, we, we were talking about, you know, the, the message and, and how the Kingdom Fund team and generosity is a response and all that. Uh, can you share some of your words around that? You had some really good thoughts to share in, in the context of the KFT. So 
The goal of the Kingdom Fund team was that not just to give the money that the, that the church um, was blessed with through generous giving in the past, but to encourage people to actually ride along with this generosity and maybe grow in their own faith as well. So for example, um, when we gave lessons about these different organizations, um, we encouraged people to maybe get involved in these organizations, to understand them better, and maybe to give their money personally to these groups as well. As well as um, to, to kind of make it not just a one-time thing, but to make it more of a life habit, to make it a, a, a sacrificial, purposeful giving, not just one time, but to have it go forward. One of the things that we did at the Kingdom Funds team's inception, if you remember, is I think there was almost this temptation like, let's just, let's, just, um, let's just give out the money, right? But we said, no, no, no. What we want to do is we want to combine it with the teaching because we don't want just like a small group of the church to be really generous and like, hey, we're going to spend the church's money, you know? It's like shopping for the church, right? But what we wanted to do is really combine it with teaching from the scriptures because we wanted the hearts of our congregation to change. And now the fullness of the change of their hearts that their money would, would come alongside. So it wasn't just, hey, let's empty our wallets, but it's like, let's get our hearts transformed then as, as an overflow of that transformation to a kind of be resulting in our wallets, right? Right. So, for example, um, we have one family that responded to this last year of um, living simply and giving generously by choosing to give up their summer vacation to Asia. And instead of taking an expensive trip for the whole family, airfare, lodging, um, they decided to set that money aside and committed that to an, a Christian organization so that it can be used um, for the longer eternity. Um, s similarly, um, you know, it, not everybody even has an international trip to Asia during the summer. Um, but on the flip side, we had a college student um, who was so touched by one of the speakers that he went up to her and just said, here, I wanted to give to your organization. And he gave her a check for $100. Um, for a college student, it's a lot of money. Even for me, it's a lot of money. Um, but the fact that he was so touched that he did that, we actually didn't hear from him. It was the speaker who told us about this because she was so touched. And, and so, I, again, I, I think as we, as we tell these stories, there's, there's almost like this, I'm not trying to be a party pooper, but there's almost like this, this, this temptation to go, look, we are so generous, you know? And, and uh, I, we always have to fight that temptation. And the way we fight it is through Ephesians 2. We go, you know, it's really about what God did. Look at the generosity of God, you know? When we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God gave up the life of his son to make us alive. And so giving our money up and living simply to be more, that's just like the only logical, natural thing to do in response to what God did, right? So I think when, when you give, um, you know, sometimes people, uh, they're touched because they heard something really inspiring or whatever, and they, they give largely that one time. Um, what we've seen, though, as people's response to, to um, the teaching for generosity is that, um, for example, one couple um, started giving, started tithing because of the first year of the series, and you know, they, it, was, it was, you know, sacrificially, and, um, but they got the hang of it, I guess, um, you know, they, they wanted to just share the grace that had been bestowed upon them, and um, this current second year of the generosity series, um, one of them actually um, has uh, switched his, his job situation, and now they're only on one salary. Um, however, they've decided that they were going to continue on the same level of giving, even though they're on one salary and they used to have two. So it, it's, it's not just obviously not out of guilt um, because they have every right according to the you know teachings on tithing to give to give to stop giving two 
salaries worth of tithe, but they've continued that. Um, similarly, another person in our uh, membership um, had been giving, had been tithing pretty regularly for quite a while, and on top of that was, um, you know, giving here and there as he was asked. Um, but when he realized the number that he was giving, it was, you know, roughly 10%, a little bit more. And um, because of, uh, you know, sacrificial giving that he wanted to do, he made a commitment to give an additional percent for that year. And he, his goal is to the next year give yet another additional percent and to try, try and do that for the next three years. So um, you guys are doing a phenomenal job. And I just want to say, you guys, this is it. It's not, about, it's not about us. It's about what God did and our response. And that is just the best way to go about it, you know. And so can we give a hand to the K KFT and to Amy? And Thank you, guys. Uh, let me talk a little bit about Richmond. Now, um, if you are going to Richmond, would you just go and raise your hands? Okay, that, that's most of us that are going to Richmond for the Living Hope uh, ice cream. Now, I, I wanted to share a little bit of a story. Um, this is, okay, this is one of those things where um, when we go, we collect these stories, and this is one of the, 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 the better stories that we have. It's just kind of an unusual story. So I, I want to share it and then some, uh, some words around it, and then let's, let's stand up and be commissioned to go, Okay. Now, last year when we went to Richmond, there was a man that went through our eye screening. It's kind of weird, though, because we don't really remember who this man was. Uh, he was not very friendly. He was kind of cold, kind of hard, kind of skeptical. He kind of blended in. He didn't really look like anyone different, at least as, for as much as we could tell, kept to himself. But when he was in line, because we have all these stations, he couldn't help but get into these conversations with you guys, right? And then he left. The next day, uh, one of his associates came to the screening. And this boy was really excited. He said, somebody just went through here yesterday with a lot of power. And you guys changed the way that he sees church in Jesus. So, you know, he was really mysterious. Like, somebody with a lot of power. And we didn't know who this person was. But we just started asking more questions. Like, who is this person? And it turns out that this person had gone to various churches and various free, free clinics. But he was just treated like a number. You know, there's no respect. There's no dignity. He was just a number. So when he came into our eye screening, he was cold and hard. Okay, ready to be treated like a number. But something changed. Like he was interacting with you guys and he was laughing, he was talking, and you guys genuinely seemed to care about him. You were reflecting something that he hadn't experienced before in these like free clinics. Well, the next night we're closing up shop and Pastor Curtis is there, he's cleaning up the lot and there's this big black Mercedes that just kind of rolls slowly <laughs> to the lot and then stops. And the window kind of like, you know, the power window comes down and Paris Curtis is like, because he's been in the inner city for a while, like, okay, this is not good, right? <laughs> this is not a good thing. But he sees a man driving and he seems to identify him. He waves at Pastor Curtis like a very warm gesture and he rides off. Then Pastor Curtis kind of makes the connection. This man was in the neighborhood, a very powerful drug dealer. And this was the man that a couple days ago went through the eye screening, cold and hard and skeptical of Christians, and they're all hypocrites. But he saw something in you guys that changed his heart. 
something about the way you guys talked to him, the way you looked at him, the way you interacted with him, the dignity, the love, the compassion that you showed to him. That's what the eye screening is all about. Now, let me tell you something. If you go just because you want to support the church or it's because it's a church thing and this is something you should do, the moment you meet someone that disrespects you or is entitled, you kind of go, I don't need this in my life. But if you go because you are driven by the mercy of God and what he did on the cross for you and you're blown away by that with gratitude, then you can give and you can give and you can give unconditionally and there's no limit. That's the motivation, not just for the ice cream, but for life, for working hard for Jesus and working on your marriage and working on these relationships and even working hard at work. It's all about what he did and what we do is a response. So I just want you guys to remember that. For the, most of you guys who are going to Richmond and for other of you guys who are praying for us, when you're in the inner city, remember why you're there. Why are you there? Because God, who is rich in mercy, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Jesus Christ. Church, it's by grace that you've been saved. And to the degree that you're blown away by that, you have power to live a life that truly demands explanation. A radical, supernatural God-filled life. That's what you're called to. All right, let's please stand up. Now, I'm going to commission all you guys. Some of you are like, you know, I'm not going. I didn't really sign up. Well, there's, there's two things you could do. You could pray for us. You could, be, you could be part of the mission in spirit. And also, I don't know, uh, maybe there's some more openings. Leslie, there's some more openings? Yeah, you should check with Gordon. But there's still possibilities. Actually, you can check with Gordon, Okay. But really, we want to do this as a church, so if you can't be there in presence, be there in spirit. And let's be commissioned together. Father, this message was about you, and you were the hero of this message. It's about what you did. We were lost. We were dead. We were living for our own passions. We were by nature objects of wrath. And Lord, I don't know if people can relate to that. I think, do I need to convince people that that's true? With, with the exercise, with the documentary, go, okay, okay, that is true. I don't know. I think a, for a person to realize that's true takes the conviction of your spirit, and I know that you're working and showing people the truth so that when we talk about your great mercy, people are like, oh, man, that, that is so good news. They're captivated. They're dazzled by that. If there's a lack of being dazzled by that, Lord, I pray that you would plume us to the depths of knowing these truths, how far we were lost, and how great God's hand of, of, of saving was for us. For we've been saved by grace. It's not what you did. It's not what we earn. But all that we do is a response to your great love. So, church, at Christian Layman Church, I commission you to go to Richmond. I commission you to love unconditionally. I, can, I commission you to get to know people and have great conversations. I commission you not to treat people like numbers, but to give them dignity and respect and care and warmth and compassion. And I also say, don't go by the power of your own love and your own compassion, but go reflecting, thinking on the God who died for you 
the God who loves you, the God who is so rich in mercy that when you were dead, he made you alive. And to the degree that you reflect that, you will live an unconditional life that demands explanation.